kid, when kids want to be all the way up, that's pretty good. So. Well, I'm glad they're here. All right, well, good morning once again. Glad you're here. Wow, you made it by yourself with the kids. Wow, that's impressive. Oh, yeah, thank you for having me. All right, well, thanks again for joining us this morning. Hey, a couple of other things I forgot to mention to Michael. Hey, uh, just really quickly, a couple of other announcements. Um, uh, we are planning to put together a handyman helps kind of a ministry here. Uh, and so there's a few guys already that are interested in helping out with that. If you would like to be involved in that, stick around for a few minutes after church. We're going to work out some of the logistics and what that means exactly, because we're not going to build a deck for you or anything. But, you know, if somebody uh, has a need where something needs to get fixed and you're just really need help, They're, we're going to try and put something together within the church that we can sort of have somebody come out and help you with that. So got a bunch of guys with skills like that, and uh, so we're going to put a group together for that. So if you'd like to be part of that, uh, stick around today after church for a few minutes, and we'll kind of talk about it. Um, also, we have, uh, uh, some time ago, we began to put together what we were calling an emergency response team. So if somebody got sick or, God forbid, something happened here that required some immediate action, uh, we're putting a team together to address those things. We'll have a meeting about that in the next couple of weeks or so, but I just want to plant that in your head. So if you'd like to be involved, if you have medical skills or you want to maybe be part of a volunteer security team, uh, we're going to be putting those things together and getting some rotation going on that. Um, a couple of other things. Uh, we talked about name tags. We are almost ready with those. We're going to start having them out, I believe, next week. That is the plan, so we'll have a, a, an area on the table out there for that. If you would, uh, if you're, and actually this will tie together my last two announcements here. If you're not on our directory already, we'd encourage you to, to, to get on there because of a number of reasons. One is because that will uh, mean that you'll get our weekly emails with announcements and what's going on. Um, if, and, and if for some reason we have to cancel a service or something like that, that's one of the ways that we try to reach everybody. Uh, as well as our Facebook page and that kind of stuff. But we like to try and get everybody on the email thing if we can. So if, you are, if you're just visiting and you're just saying hi, welcome, we're glad you're here, but you won't be necessarily coming forward, um, that's, not, that's not important for you to do. But if you are here regularly uh, and you're not currently on the directory, we'd like you to go ahead and fill out a slip in the back with your name, your phone number, preferably your address and that too, and your email address. And this way we can put you in our contact list and, and we can reach you and you'll be part of the directory. You can get other people's phone numbers and that kind of thing. In connection with that, by the way, uh, that will also help us make name tags for you, for the name tags. But one other thing Justin just reminded me of is that uh, as it's tax season and uh, a number of folks have donated funds to the church, we are a 501c3, which means your donations are tax deductible. Um, but if you're not on the directory and we have trouble getting your yearly giving statement to you, um, that can be an issue. So that's another reason we'd like you to be on the directory so that we can uh, have that 
either a physical address to mail it to or an email address that we can email it to you and you can just print it out yourself. So uh, if you would, just one more time, um, if you're not on the directory or if you are on the directory and for some reason you're not getting the emails, I've been hearing that lately, that a number of folks have been not, not been getting the emails and that. So um, uh, let me know if you're not getting them and if you're not on the directory, please fill out one of those slips with that information so we can put you on there. All right? Cool. All right. I think that's it. So why don't we stand together and we're going to read from the Word and then we'll get into our our teaching this morning. This morning, I'll invite you to turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We're going to read verses 5 through 14. All right. All right, Romans chapter 6. Again, verses 5 through 14. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, and that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin." Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord." Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present yourselves members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Lord, that last part right there is such a great reminder to us. We thank you that though we are still in these bodies of flesh, and we still do battle against them. The temptations are still there. The things that might trip us up still sometimes do. But we thank you that we're under your grace, that where we stumble, where we fall, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And we just pray that, Lord, we would each day, as we take up our cross and follow after Jesus, Just put the old man down once again. Just remember that we have been bought and paid for, and that with the Holy Spirit's help, we can walk in such a way as to glorify you. But we need you for this. We can't do this ourselves. And so we pray for your help in this regard, and we thank you, Lord, for your gracious hand on us. We thank you for your grace toward us, and we pray that you would bless us with a deeper understanding of some of these things as we make our way through the text this morning. Thank you, Father. We love you and praise you, and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, why don't you go ahead and be seated. All right, well, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to be reading verses 25 through 32. All right, Ephesians chapter uh, 4, verses 25 to 32. 
Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Well, Father, as we look at these passages today, we once again would ask that you'd help us to understand them, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate for us the truths that are in these words, that we might apply them. Uh, Father, we again thank you for your grace and that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit until that day of redemption. And we thank you for the security that brings us. But we do pray that you'd help us to do war against the flesh even right now. Thank you, Father. Continue to pull us further and further apart from the world and make us more and more like Christ. We just praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the second half of the epistle, as we've been mentioning, uh, has moved from what we are in Christ and what we have in Christ to what that then looks like as we live for Christ. Uh, what happens in the life of a believer, um, inside the life of a believer, will naturally find its way out in the course of things as we walk with him. Uh, we spoke last week about how we can define sanctification in two different senses. One is the once and for all having been set apart for Christ in terms of our being saved. We are no longer dead in sin, we are now alive in Christ. No longer are we in darkness, now we're in light. No longer are we on the broad road that leads to, uh, to destruction, but now on the narrow road that leads to everlasting life. This is the beauty of that once for all having been justified in Christ. But there's another term, uh, way that the word sanctification is used, and that is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit to make us more like Jesus, to sort of uh, work the world out of us and the flesh that we do battle with, and now to give us um, more and more each day, or draw us, I should say, more and more each day into the image of Christ, where we look more and more like him and less and less like the world. This is not something that we do to earn a place at the table, as it were. Rather, this is what happens once he who has earned that place in the table for us gets a hold of us. Jesus would say, you can tell a tree by its fruit. Again, we mentioned there are two different contexts in which Jesus said that. Once, was in regard to false prophets. You can tell a tree and judge a tree by its fruit. The fruit of a false prophet is false prophecies, right? The other time he spoke about it, it was a much more general sense, the idea that you can just tell a tree by its fruit. If I tell you I'm an apple tree, but I'm squeezing out pears, something's wrong, right? If I tell you I'm a Christian, but you can't tell, something's wrong. That's not a means of making sure this is how I go to heaven, but if I'm on the way to heaven, you should be able to tell. And if I know that I'm one of his, and the Holy Spirit actually is working within me, as he is in all believers, then that naturally finds expression through the way that we live. Yes, there is the submitting to him and surrendering to him, to saying, Lord, take all of me and do what you're going to do, and not fighting the work of the Holy Spirit and pulling us further apart from the world. It's been said, and we made the joke last time, I think it was, you know, it's, we're supposed to present ourselves a living, uh, uh, you know, a living sacrifice. The problem with a living sacrifice is that sometimes it tries to crawl off the altar. We don't want to do that. We want to 
give ourselves over to him, that he might do that sanctifying work and make us more and more like Jesus. Because that's where his glory is wrought in the world, the people see that light shining in that, but it's also the place where joy is. It's a place where the understanding of what's true satisfaction and fulfillment is when we are walking and living with the one we were created for. We don't want to resist that. We don't want to fight that. We also don't want to make the mistake, once again, as we uh, spent about the first, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes last time talking about, we also want to make sure we don't confuse the idea of our being further and further set apart for Christ practically with what it means to have been once and for all set apart to Christ positionally. We want to make sure we understand the distinction between those two things. The first is that we're justified. Then, once we have been, the Holy Spirit begins to then make us more like Jesus. Anything short of that is what we would call legalism. It's also a false sense of security and hope because we're basing it on our actions rather than on the finished work of Christ. We have to make sure we're clear on that. Nobody has ever been saved by their own efforts. Galatians 2.21, if righteousness comes by the law or by my actions, if I try to live rightly and that's how I'm going to get to heaven, then Jesus died for nothing. Okay? It could not be clearer. And so we understand sanctification in those two ways. So that being said, as Paul mentioned in the first part of the passage last time, the Holy Spirit is interested in affecting our walk with Jesus and our conduct, the idea that our outward living of our Christian faith matters in terms of our testimony to the world, in terms of our lives being a a way to glorify God. This is something that we should desire and should want. Again, we're setting aside the idea of earning, right? I want to be able to know that if I talk about these things, you don't confuse what I'm saying, or I don't confuse you with what I'm saying, and making it sound like your salvation is contingent upon your shoulders and your hard work. It's not. It never has been, and it never could be. It is what he has done. But now that he's done that, he's doing some other work. He loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. So, um... The second half of the book, as we mentioned, second half of the letter deals with that practical outworking. And so therefore, there's a lot of very practical instruction. In some ways, it's easier than some of the loftier theological things that take some real digging into to to, 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 to really kind of grasp what's being said. It's a worthwhile pursuit, but it takes some work sometimes. A lot of what Paul will say for the remainder of the book is generally pretty straightforward. The hard part in the second part of the book is that it changes us. It's not just things that we understand, it's things that now reflect what we are in Christ in terms of how we live, what we look like as believers. That becomes challenging because by definition it grates against the flesh. My flesh doesn't want to necessarily put others first or want to necessarily live for Jesus. My flesh wants to live for me. My flesh wants to satisfy its appetites and give in to temptations and do the things that I want to do in the flesh. But Jesus has something better for me. But it requires me giving myself over to him and saying, Lord, please work this out in me. Help me to make the right choices and not to go down the wrong paths, but rather to walk in wisdom and to walk in such a way that blesses you. I can't do that myself, but I do want it. And I would ask you to let the Holy Spirit have his way in me. This is the daily taking up our cross, dying to self, and following after Jesus. 
This is the practical element of what it means to look like a Christian as we are Christians. So what happens as we read these passages and we learn some of the practical admonitions that, that define what our lives can look like and ought to look like, um, it can be pretty uncomfortable because we can realize that maybe we're not, we don't look like that. That's a, wow, okay, this, this looks pretty good. Um, speak truth with his neighbor. Be angry. Do not sin. Don't let any corrupt words proceed out of my mouth. You know, um, wow, I, I don't always do that. You know, and, and when I see that, I look at myself and say, uh, okay. It's kind of like the passage on love, right? Love is patient, love is kind, keeps no record of wrongs, all these things. It's a beautiful passage. And there's this wonderful exercise. If you take the word love out of that, it's 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. If you take the word love out and you put Jesus' name in there, it still reads very nicely. Jesus is patient. He's kind. Keeps no record of wrongs. Here's the exercise. Take Jesus' name out. Put your name in. Put my name in. Suddenly it becomes sickening and difficult. Painful. Well, I read these passages here like in Ephesians where we're reading and I'm like, okay, this is a lofty thing. I want to be like that. And truth be told, to some degree or another, for some of us, some of these elements maybe are not as challenging as others, but chances are we're reading through this and thinking, okay, boy, I need a tune-up or something. Something needs to get fixed here. And that's, that's painful for us. That's the hard part in this context. It's not lofty and deep theologically, but it is painfully practical. The good news is, is that God knew that about us before he ever created us. The things that this may expose about ourselves and our way of living is not a surprise to the Lord. He knew this long before, and he saved us anyway, and he's working on us. And here's something that helps us get through this. Sometimes we have a tendency to get disappointed in ourselves when we don't live up to the standards we see in terms of Christian conduct as laid out in Scripture. This should help. It is impossible by definition for you to disappoint God. Now, wait a minute. What do you mean by that? God already knew everything about you there was to know, which means you can't surprise him when you screw up. When you fall on your face, when you fail, when you don't live up to what you know Jesus would ask of you in terms of your conduct, when you don't live up to that, you didn't surprise him with that. He knew that about you and me a long time ago. We're surprised by it, right? We get shocked when we fall in some way. We say some, some uh, corrupt word does come out of our mouth and we go, oh my gosh, where did that come from? I didn't think I was capable of that. Well, the Lord said I did. I saw that coming a long time ago. I knew that about you, and so therefore I'm not surprised by it. So by definition, we can't disappoint him because he already knows this about us. That's the beauty of grace, is that when we stumble, when we fall, grace picks us up and we keep going. It's not a competition with one another. It's not like our salvation is hinging on how well we do the things we're reading about today. Our salvation has already been settled in heaven by the finished work of Christ on the cross. 
what we're talking about now is him taking all of us. Remember the old song, Lord, take all of me. In my life, Lord, be glorified. Be glorified today. Lord, take all of me. These kinds of sentiments that we sing, this is what we're talking about. I don't know about you, but I want him to have full reign over my life. I don't want there to be pockets of resistance. I don't want there to be areas that I close off in some place, in some corner somewhere, some cavern in my heart that I just sort of try to keep him out of. I want him to expose those. I want him to pull those things up to the surface, like the refiner's fire, right? The idea of of turning up the heat in that vat of, of gold, that the dross, as it's known, all that gunk that, that keeps the gold from being purified, as the heat rises, uh, so does the, the gunk. It goes to the top, and then it gets skimmed off, and the, the gold is that much more pure because of that. I want him to turn up the heat in those areas of my life that he needs to, because I want to, I want to be like Jesus, I don't want anybody to have to wonder if I know the Lord, and I don't want to do something that slips up and causes people to question. I want those things dealt with, and I want him to deal with them. I don't want you dealing with them, and you don't want me dealing with yours. You know? But I do want Jesus to deal with it. I, I, I want him to approach those things, and I don't want to try to stop him. And so I'll let it hurt, I'll let it sting, I'll let it correct me. And I'll ask by the power of the Holy Spirit that I can be better at these things for his glory and for the benefit of others who need to know him and that kind of thing. And also, by the way, for your benefit. There was, years ago, there was a trend among hip, cool pastors, of which I know nothing. Uh, but, but there was a trend... Uh, as a Christian, by the way, you sort, of, you sort of have signed up to be tragically uncool in the eyes of the world. That's just sort of what it is, tragically unhip. But there was a trend among, you know, really cool pastors years ago where every now and then they'd let a, a swear word fly from the pulpit because they're just so passionate and so angry about something, and they just let something fly. They just, you know, that's how passionate they are. I don't ever want to do that. I don't ever want to, and, and that's just one example of something. I don't ever want to do something that stumbles you in your faith, I might, but boy, I sure don't want to. I don't want to say something. I don't want to counsel one of you with arrogance. You know, it's to your benefit that I want to be this, and it's to all of our benefit that we all want to be this, because it creates an environment in the body of believers where we're as the word edifying means, we're building each other up. We're pouring into each other. We are a balm and Gilead to one another. We are, uh, we, we are somebody who helps dust you off and keep you going when you have a hard time or you're struggling right now and that kind of thing. It just it creates an environment that is fundamentally different than anything you'll get out there. We don't want anything out there like that getting in here. And that means I have to want this. And I do for those reasons. I'm not Believe me, I, I already know that none of this is going to earn my place in heaven. I'm thankful that Jesus settled that, because I will fail at this. So thankfully, I'm not starting from that place of trying to earn victory in this, but rather I'm starting from a place of victory that Jesus is now applying in my life as he's helping me walk through these things and sort them out and live them out. And so with that, that in mind, that mindset, we look at this passage. Therefore, now of course you see a therefore, you always stop and ask yourself what it's, 
therefore, right? That never gets old, or hopefully it doesn't, but that's, what's he talking about? Well, the whole thing he was just talking about in the previous passage, we'll go ahead and look at verse 22 to 24 and read that, and then come back to the therefore. Uh, uh, in verse 21, if indeed you've heard him, you've been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows and cor- uh, grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, with all that there, therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Uh, So therefore, because these things are our pursuit, to put off the old man, to put on the new man in Christ, to, to understand that our conduct matters, again, not in terms of our being saved, but in terms of our being continually sanctified and being a blessing to those around us and a glory to God. Since that is our desire, therefore, putting off lying or uh, putting off falsehoods and that kind of thing. The word putting off means to cast away, to leave behind, to let it get taken away. So the things he's talking about here are things that we want to sort of put off with the old man. This is what the garment that the old man was wearing is covered by. This is what it's defined as. And we want to set these things apart entirely. So putting away falsehood or lying. Lying means to speak with the intent of deceiving. If I ask you what time we're meeting for lunch, and you say 1 o'clock, but it was actually 2 o'clock, and you thought it was 1 o'clock, you're not lying to me. You just had your facts wrong. But on the other hand, if you tell me lunch is at 2 and you know it's at 1 because you don't want me to be there, (laughs) could happen. That's lying. That's the intent to deceive with some personal benefit that you're gaining from it, right? You're telling an untruth that you know is untruth. There's no place for that among believers. There's no place for that among believers. One of the many names for Satan is the father of lies, right? There should be nothing like that on the mouth or in the heart of a believer to want to lie to one another to make ourselves look good or to deceive somebody for whatever that reason might be. We don't want to lie to people. We want to cast that off entirely. But by contrast, notice again, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor for we're members of one another. That's actually a quote from Zechariah 8 when God is talking about restoring Judah. Among the things that he will do or he calls them to do at the top of the list is that they speak truth to one another. They have a society, a culture to get that is rooted in truth and expresses truth in their midst, fundamental to the restoration of God's people in the Old Testament and the tribes of Judah. And Paul sort of borrows from that concept and says, so it should be in the church. In other words, that body of people who have been redeemed by the Lord should certainly reflect this characteristic, because God is the God of truth with a capital T, and so therefore, as his followers, as his redeemed, as his beloved, we should also be like that in regard to our dealings with one another. We should be like Jesus and telling the truth, being truthful, and putting off any propensity toward telling untruths. Now, of course, that's not just within the body. That should be our modus operandi anywhere we are in the world. But certainly in this place, our yes should be yes and our no should be no. Everything else is what? From the wicked one, right? So the idea here is is that we are truth-tellers to one another. Now, let me just 
say this as a caveat to that. In chapter 4, verse 15, Paul said, tell the truth, speak the truth in love. There's a lot of people that get a lot of mileage on, well, I'm just telling you the truth, brother. And what you're saying might be true, but you don't mind just letting it fly, even though it might do damage. We want to tell the truth in love with the desire, and, and just within a couple of passages there, he speaks about the idea of, of edifying one another. And here, once again, he reminds us the importance of edification. So when we speak the truth, we do so in love, which means we tell the truth, because you're not loving somebody by lying to them. But how we deliver that truth is sometimes very important as well. Um, there's probably lots of examples that we could each think of in our own lives when we've said something true to somebody, but we said it more like a dagger than like a scalpel. We want to be careful about this. Building up is the goal. The idea of helping others to grow in their faith, even as we would hope they would help us grow in ours. That we pour into and build into, as Jesus would. That we approach people with the kind of mindset that the one who would not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering flax, that we would have the same kind of an attitude in our dealings with one another. And, and, and in, in all honesty, that can be hard for us as human beings because sometimes we get frustrated. Sometimes we maybe are having a bad day and then somebody comes to us with something and we get short with them or something like that. We do this in our homes all the time, probably. <laughs> Someone's laughing. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but... But love with the purpose of building up is the goal. This is what the Holy Spirit is working in us. And so to speak the truth and to do so in love. As a matter of fact, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 16, Galatians, which is a book that is heavy on grace for the sake of those who are in those churches who are in danger of going back to legalism. Having begun in the Spirit, will you now be made complete in the flesh? Paul would ask them. And at one point, he stops and says, have I now become your enemy because I'm telling you the truth, these truths, because I'm confronting your propensity to move back to legalism, if I'm calling you out on that so that you don't make that mistake, am I now your enemy for doing this? And Paul, by the way, could speak very directly and even sarcastically, but Paul loved them. And he went to great lengths to explain and expand on these ideas that they might be understood and embraced. Uh, it's interesting that the church in Corinth was the most carnal of all the churches that he wrote to and that he had any part in planting. This church just could not move away from its carnality. But yet Paul still would try, matter of fact, even when they began to turn coat on him and go after these false teachers, even in that, his intention was that they not be misled. He wasn't so much offended that he was being sort of put off, but he was worried for their sake. And so he told them about it, that they might be built up and not torn down by these false teachers, even though it was no doubt deeply hurtful for him to sort of be treated by them the way he had now been treated. But out of love and a desire to see them grow, he told them the truth, that they would not fall to these things. Every now and then we have to speak truth, even though it's hard. We do it in love and we try to even say it as lovingly as we can, but it's important that that truth come, come forth lest we allow someone to continue down a path of error and be hurt by it. This is a game where the outcome matters. 
where every yard that we're pushing for counts for something. And it's worth it sometimes to have to go that extra mile and put yourself in the seat of potentially being seen as the bad guy for saying the truth. Because it's necessary. But again, let it so be spoken in love. And again, Paul says, because we're members of one another. We're part of a body. Uh, We mentioned in a previous study where Paul, speaking to the Corinthian church, spoke about the idea of being a part of the body of Christ. Uh, A hand or an eye or a foot and that kind of thing. And all of us need one another for that body to be whole. And so therefore, we don't do things to hurt one another any more than parts of our body intentionally try to hurt something else. This is the natural course of what a body is supposed to do. And as those with the Holy Spirit living within us, it is something that is possible. Now he goes on. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. This also is a quote from Psalm, uh, Psalm 4, verse 4, but also probably even Psalm 37, uh, verses 7 and 8 too. Matter of fact, let's turn to that maybe, and then we'll spend more time on this passage. Psalm 37, everybody knows verse 3 and 4. Let's read verses uh, 7 and 8, where David writes, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. In the midst of seeing someone who is doing evil and propagating wickedness, don't be angry with them but rather cease from that and cease from wrath. The idea being that we're going to trust God in the midst of that to take care of what needs to happen. When Paul here, in quoting Psalm 4, which says something very similar to what we read in Psalm 37, he says, Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. By the way, verse 27 would imply that what has been said so far are exactly the kinds of things that can give place to the devil. He's come to steal, kill, and destroy, There's no need for us to leave the door unlocked for him, right? So be angry and do not sin. How is it possible to be angry and not sin? If you ever think about that, that can be challenging. Well, the answer is that some anger is what might be defined as righteous indignation. Anger toward things that are sin. Anger toward wickedness and evil. To harbor that kind of anger toward things that are wicked and evil is not necessarily a bad thing. It is, in fact, a righteous thing. It means that you hate things that God hates. Now you say, well, hate's an awfully strong word. I don't think we should hate anything. Um, Yeah, there are. There are things that we should hate. Rape? I'm not okay with that. I hate that. I hate what that does to a woman. Uh, exploiting children. I hate that. I hate what that does to a child. I wish God would leave it up to me to deal with that. That's how much I hate that. Be angry, but don't sin. When I'm angry in the kind of anger that I have as a human being, which generally means I'm not looking at it from the perspective that God is, or with the grace that God is showing for a time, the patience that he's demonstrating right now. When I instead get angry in the flesh, 
about something, that can, that, can find its, that can find its way out in some painful ways, both internally and externally. As a matter of fact, some have seen in this list of things that Paul says sort of a progression that goes further and further and further. And maybe you'll see that as we go through it. But don't be, be angry, but don't sin. This requires me to surrender my flesh to the Lord and help him, or ask him, I should say, to help me to see things differently, or at least know, like it said in Psalm 37, that I should be able to entrust this to him rather than take matters into my own hands, or even to brew and seethe over it. This is something that goes contrary to my nature. Matter of fact, on the list of things that are expected of pastors, elders, and that kind of thing, one of them is to be tempered in all things. I will be honest with you, that's the one I struggle with most. Be the husband of one wife? That's easy. Tempered in all things? I don't even drink. Okay, not be given to much wine. I'm given to no wine. Tempered in all things? That one's a bit of a challenge for me sometimes. Not always patient. Not always governing my spirit in that regard. I have to bring that to the Lord. Be angry and don't sin. Lord, let my anger not be so base as to be rooted in my own flesh, but let it be only toward those things that you hate. That's literally my desire. That's, that's my prayer. And I think that's what Paul has in mind here. Um, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. By the way, that's good advice to a married couple. That's the way I heard that verse for the first time, and it's always stuck that way. Don't go to bed angry with your spouse. That's not just for married couples. It's not actually in the context of marriage. That, that's for all of us. Don't be prone and don't, be, don't have enough rule over your spirit that you can... Settle that by the end of the day. Don't just carry it, is essentially what's in view. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And wrath speaks of rage, anger. The way it's used here, in a couple, uh, the way a couple of these user, words are used, and we'll see it as we come to it, some speak to the momentary outburst, lashing out in wrath and rage. Others speak more to the idea of it being part of your personality and character. I'm angry. I'm an angry person. I'm not. I'm just saying that. This way. <laughs> but it speaks in two sort of different contexts. One is sort of like I lashed out. One is that it's just part of my personality. Um, but when it comes to dealing with our wrath, our sense of rage-like anger against things, Let that be handed over to the Lord daily so that it might not be the kind of thing that just defines you and that you carry over and that you let bleed into the next day and into the next day and into your relationships and that kind of thing. Again, for some, this is a very difficult thing because we are just ticked off at the world or we're angry or we just, for some reason, it's just our personality and our nature to be this way. Lord, help me. This does not reflect your personality, Jesus. You did not just stay angry. And if anybody had reason to, he did. I'm at, you know, you and I see a microcosm of what's going on in the world and it ticks us off. Imagine seeing all of it for all of time and space and seeing all of the creation that you made that was so beautiful and perfect tarnished for all of history after like, you know, page two. 
from that point on, everything you see is tainted and, and wicked and ruined and stomped on. And, but you're patient and you're long-suffering. You're not willing that people should perish. Lord, I need some of that. I need some of that. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And again, nor give place to the devil. Verse 28, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, and that he may uh, have something to give him who has need. Now again, there is um, there's something very just plainly practical about some of this. It's almost like Proverbs or James or something, where there's just a lot of just right-on-the-nose instruction. Let him who steals not do that anymore. Okay, Eighth Commandment, we all know it, right? You shall not steal. doesn't seem like it needs to really be said, right? I mean, everyone knows stealing is wrong, but there is something within us that sort of has this sense of, I deserve this or that or the other thing. Starts with covetousness in our hearts, right? When Jesus talked about, if you hate someone in your heart, it's as if you've murdered them. When you lust after someone in your heart, it's as if you've committed adultery. Well, if you carry that out, when you covet your neighbor's goods, it's as well as stealing them. Why? Because stealing starts here. Adultery starts here. Murder starts here. So no one, no one escapes that. We've all had these issues in our hearts and that kind of thing. So I think it's not, Paul's clearly dealing with the practical element, don't take things that belong to somebody else. But notice he connects that with the idea of working and working enough to take care of other people's needs. Well, now you're moving into a heart issue. Now it's not just, I want what you have for myself. Now it's, I want to give you what I have. That's a whole different thing. This now speaks to a very significant inward change that takes place by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what the new man begins to look like as the old man continues to fade into the distance and is put away. It changes our mindsets and our attitudes. Suddenly now I'm not just seeing what I can get out of this relationship. It's what can I contribute to it? It's not just, okay, here's what my practical needs are. Here's, even if I don't have enough, what do you need? Right? The idea is, and let me put in a few extra hours if that's what it takes to make sure you have what you need. That's a generosity and a desire to serve one another in such a way that is a blessing to God and others and reflects his nature and character. And by the way, without getting on a political kick, this is not an endorsement of socialism because that's somebody else taking your money and giving it to somebody else. This is you deciding because out of your heart, which has been changed profoundly by the renewing of the Holy Spirit, that you now have a different mindset. This is the kind of thing that was present in Acts chapter 5 when it talked about how they were selling their goods and giving it to the disciples that it might be distributed. Notice the free giving. That was Ananias and Sapphira's problem, right? They were free to give whatever they wanted or not at all. They just wanted to be seen as though they were giving more than they were. But Peter makes the point, stomping out the socialist mindset, was it not yours to do with as you pleased? Right? So the idea is not that you have to do this. The idea is that the Holy Spirit is changing us, and in making us more like Christ, we become naturally more generous. Because we want to. Because we see a need, and it hurts us that that need exists, and we try to help it. It's not just that I'm not stealing. It's that I'm even working harder to make sure you have what you need. That, again, speaks to a changed person. 
Verse 29, let, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary, here again is that word, edification, the idea of building up, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Corrupt, uh, corrupt word speaks of the idea of something being rotten or putrefied, no longer useful. And it's been often compared to the idea of rotten fruit. Um, Selena was working for uh, like an agricultural, and is, I think, still working for an agricultural thing. Not anymore? Okay, she was. Anyway, if you ever were out there and then you saw the box of oranges on the ground, that came from that. And so if, if someone was going to, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to like, okay, that didn't take away your blessing or whatever, but, but you know, it's, if, if when someone offers you something like that, oh, that's awesome, that's great. You peel it open, you enjoy an orange, or there's a bunch left, you take it home, make juice, whatever you do with it. But if it's all rotten and everything, it's not really good anymore, is it? Well, since it is up to you what kind of fruit you want to give, by way of example, don't give rotten, putrid fruit out. Give good fruit, you know? Don't say things that are rotten and useless and are putrid and are not healthy for anybody and actually can make people sick, but rather say things that build up and pour into. Speak in such a way as to impart grace to the hearer. Let your speech be seasoned with salt, right? The idea of seasoning and, and preserving and that kind of thing. This, again, is something that we understand the value of, we appreciate personally the benefit of when it's spoken to us, but it sometimes grates against our human nature. Sometimes we just have different motivations and that kind of thing. This once again speaks to a change in heart. I want to speak in such a way as to edify you and to build you up. I don't want to say things that will tear you down or hurt you in some way. But rather I want to speak and I want you to be stronger and built up and more like Christ as a result. Um, again, a strong contrast um, that we ought to notice. Verse 30, as we continue to move on, I, I'll just keep moving here. Verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now that is both an extension of what is being taught here in the passage specifically, but in principle, this is a, an idea that we want to understand broadly as well. To grieve means to make sad. So we already have a problem because we don't and ought not think of God as being like us, but rather we're trying to be like Him. But nonetheless, oftentimes, the Lord will speak in ways that put puts terminology forth that we can get our minds around. Again, we can't surprise God. He knows everything. Knew it before the world began. He's the sovereign of the universe. Does God get sad? Not like you and I do. God is spirit, Jesus said, right? So there are things about his character and nature that he says that reflect something that is deeply true in him, that is probably more deeply true in him than it could even ever be of us, but is it expressed the same way as you and I? Jury's out. God doesn't have eyes that weep per se, but he does speak of himself in terms like this. What he's meaning to get across is, 
is that this is the kind of thing that grates completely against what he's trying to do within us. So if you grieve him, it means we're acting in ways that are not in line with what he's working out within us. Uh, A question came up this week in this regard. Somebody in anticipation of this passage mentioned that they'd grown up in a church tradition where there was some confusion about the work of the Holy Spirit and also a question about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the question was, is this idea of grieving the Holy Spirit the same thing as blaspheming the Holy Spirit? So I wanted to speak to that because it was a direct question that came up, and I'm aware that this particular background is one that some of you share. Um, Grieving the Holy Spirit, as Paul is speaking of here, is not the same thing as blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They are two different ideas. Uh, Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, as it is used in the context where Jesus and the Pharisees are talking, and they are ascribing who he is and the works he's doing to Satan. And Jesus then speaks about the idea of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which in understanding that passage means ascribing to to Satan the work that God is doing, in particular in relation to the redemptive work of Christ, his person and his finished work. The only way you really commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is by fully rejecting him and never changing your mind. Um, So grieving the Holy Spirit is a different thing. Grieving the Holy Spirit simply means that we are not actually submitting ourselves to that work that he wants to do in us in terms of our practical sanctification. Or we are, I don't know, I'll just leave it with that example. But the idea is that the Holy Spirit is working in us in such a way where he's making us more Christ-like, but where we are not following in his lead in that way, that grieves him. Now again, I'll stop in my own short carefully short description of what that means in terms of the Holy Spirit being grieved and saddened over something, but it should be enough for us to know that it matters to God when we resist what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in our lives. It matters to God that we don't want to grow more Christ-like. He's not casting us out of grace. If you decide that you believe And in some ways, God has changed your life. We can see you believe in that and all that, but you don't really want to grow deep in your faith. Okay, I really feel bad for you, and I mean that sincerely. Like, here's where God wants to take you, but here's where you want to stop. I don't get that, but okay. That grieves the Holy Spirit. We don't want to do that. We want to veil ourselves fully. Lord, all the things you're saying here in these passages, do this in me. Have me. Take hold of me. Take all of me. Don't stop until you've gotten there. And of course, he'll never fully get there until we're in heaven, right? We've got our glorified bodies. Paul, you know, this wicked man, that wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The idea that I want to be out of this body into my glorified one. Thank God Jesus has accomplished what is necessary, and I'll have that one day. So until that day, it's going to be a work in progress, there's, how many of you had that bumper sticker on your car? Not perfect, just forgiven. It's ironic that it's on our cars. <laughs> Driving like the unsanctified, you know? <laughs> Driving by faith and not by sight. Um, I never liked that bumper sticker, you know? But in, in truth, the sentiment's a real one. We are. We are works in progress, and we have to understand that. There, there is the, the idea of our 
submitting ourselves to the Holy Spirit's work. He won't force me. You know, if, if there's an area of your life that's struggle, he's not going to force you to walk away from that. He'll encourage, he'll prod, he'll give you a taste of the goodness of the Lord and the victory that you could experience. He may even show you some of the things that this is now holding you back from in an effort for you to want to change that and to surrender yourself to him and say, please, Holy Spirit, work in me, please. This is, you know, like Paul, the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing the things I know I want to do. I don't have the strength to do, wretched man that I am. He wants us to get to that place in literally every part of our lives. This is not a legalistic condemnation trip. This is a natural desire of somebody who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I want more. Someone makes some food, it's delicious, I want more. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah, it's just, you know, we want more of a good thing, right? Well, Lord, if you want to change my life and make me more like Jesus, and I'm thankful, and, and all of us can say, to some degree, we have tasted a little bit of that. You know, we know what we once were, and we're not there anymore, and we know what it's like to be free of some of those things and to see the sky a little bluer and to, and to breathe the air a little purer because we're not in that place anymore. We want to apply that to the, new, to, to the next thing. Lord, here's, here's another area that I, I want that in. When we don't want that, it matters to God. And he'll work on us and try and get us to that place where we want it too. But at the end of the day, Part of growing in Christ is growing in your want and desire to be more like him and to experience more of God in your life as a result of that worldliness being further and further put off. Verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Again, the idea of being put away means carrying it away, casting it away. Letting it be gone. Let all, there's that word, in Greek it means all, by the way, it means let every bit of it, bitterness, let all bitterness be put away. Let all wrath, let all anger. Wow. Wow. If, there's, if, if nothing else is taken from looking at this passage, I hope this will be taken from it. You and I need the Holy Spirit working in our lives. This is not just a work out your physical desire to get past something. Paul was honest enough to acknowledge, arguably the most mature believer that you could ever meet. And he's willing to admit, again, Romans 7 and 8, the idea that this remains, this flesh that remains, continues to produce a struggle that he openly acknowledges. Notice he doesn't go on and on about what he did or what his struggle was or anything like that. He's not sort of relishing in it. He's not trying to stumble anybody. He's just simply making the point. I have struggles in my flesh that drive me crazy, that I hate, 
that I want to be delivered from. There is both the knowledge of our positional, and this gets back to where we started, the fact that we are starting that conflict, that battle with the flesh, from a position of being right before God is enormously important. You cannot actually fight the battle if that's not true already. But since we are positionally right with God as believers, if you are a born-again Christian, then you stand positionally right with God right now. And you will all the way through. You're His. Now, part of that means... Matter of fact, you'll notice here even says at the end of verse 30, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He's hearkening back to chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, where he talked about those who are born again are so because they have been sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. It's like Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, in verse 3 and 4, he talks about how we have been kept for this reward in heaven that it's kept in heaven for us who are kept by the power of God. It's not just that he set the table for us, but he's ensuring that we will sit at it. Since that is true, we now can block out the idea that my actions have anything to do with that. Now I just want to become more like Jesus. I want the flesh to be dealt with. I want all of the bitterness, all of the wrath, all of the anger, all of the malice, all of these things, I want them gone. Please, Lord, help me. Notice that. Help me. I can't do it myself. I need the Holy Spirit to work in my life in this way. So Paul can then say, let all bitterness... Who is it that said, bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die? It's probably the best definition of bitterness I've ever heard. Holding on to something against somebody, you can let that go. This ties in with verse 32 and the idea of understanding our forgiveness. How can we not forgive others if we understand what we've been forgiven of? How can we harbor bitterness towards somebody? What if they don't ask me to forgive them? Jesus paid for your sins before you asked him to forgive you. Your debt was paid long before you got saved. I can forgive somebody else. I can let go of bitterness. Wrath and anger. Again, this is what I was talking about a minute ago. Wrath is like that momentary fit of rage that rises and subsides, this passionate anger that comes up in a moment and then goes away. Anger is that sort of characteristic of your personality where you are an angry person. Paul says, let them them all be gone. Again, daily taking up our cross, following after him, submitting to the Holy Spirit. The idea of dying to self in the power of the Holy Spirit. I need him for this. Again, the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And so we don't want to hold on to things that are ultimately going to misrepresent him and, and ultimately even hurt people, really. We want to let these things go. Clamor speaks of the idea of that outward manifestation of anger, fighting with people and that sort of thing. Again, there's kind of a progression that seems to emerge as this list goes on and on. 
But the idea of clamor means that it's now being outwardly expressed. It's not just that it resides within, but now it's finding its way out. Um, some define it as fighting, whether it's arguing or whether it's like just explosive like fisticuffs or something. It just, it's in you and now it's finding its way out of you. Put that off. Let it be carried away. Evil speaking. Speaking against another person slanderously. Hmm. It's a lot of things we probably wish we could have back. Speaking about somebody or against somebody slanderously means bringing their name through the mud, typically for our own benefit, getting a laugh at their expense, um, making them look small so I look big. It ought not be so. Again, this is not just the fact that it's escaped from my mouth. It's the fact that it started in here. We're speaking about something far more than just learning how to discipline ourselves, although that's an important thing. I'm not saying, you know, if you, if you don't have it within you to change, at least do your best not to let that stuff come out of your mouth. But really, Paul's going far more than just making sure on the surface it looks a little shinier than it would have otherwise. No, he's dealing with this, this issue within us that produces this. This, again, speaks of the new man being put on and the old man being put off. And malice speaks of an ill will, a desire to bring injury to somebody. Uh, malice, it's like hatred that just is desiring to see wickedness come down upon you. Again, this is not righteous indignation, hating what God hates. This is my hating something about you or hating that you have something I don't and wanting something to come upon you that I don't have to see it anymore or maybe I get it. Just malice, it's a terrible, terrible thing and it ought to have no part in the life of a believer. But it's not enough that Someone sits up on a chair and says, hey, this shouldn't be true of us as believers. This is something we have to go to the Lord for. Change me. Only you can do that, Lord. But I want you to. Notice verse 32. Once again, we'll read this and here's where we'll wrap. And be kind to one another. That word be means to become. It continues the idea of putting off the old and putting on the new. Be becoming kind as opposed to all of this other stuff we just spent the last hour talking about. Um, be, be becoming tenderhearted and be becoming somebody who forgives one another. The idea of kind, by the way, speaks of the idea of easy, like the yoke that Jesus said to take on, his yoke. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. The idea of a yoke for, who are un for those who are unfamiliar is that You've seen one in, in shows or movies or something or in a book. It's, it's that wooden harness that sits on the back of an ox that helps them to pull a plow across a field. If a yoke was made specifically for that ox, it fit perfectly. And the ox could essentially work without it being burdensome to them. It was easy. If it didn't fit right, it became cumbersome. And you could tell the ox would struggle with it or fight against it. But if it fit right... They didn't fight against it. They would just kind of do their work and they'd eat some of the grass as they went and they'd just keep on pulling. It fit. It, wasn't, it, was, it didn't encumber them per se. And so this idea of kindness toward one another carries that idea. If you and I are walking side by side and we're sharing this yoke, I should not be making it difficult for you. It should be easy and effortless for you to be with me. I should be the kind of person you want to be around. You should be the kind of person I'd want to be around. We're equally yoked in a sense. There's a sense of ease about that relationship. Be that way toward one another. 
within the body of Christ. This becomes a great evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's another definition for it is gracious. Be gracious to one another. Uh, Tender-hearted, compassionate, having pity for one another. Now that sounds funny. Generally, if you say, you know, to somebody, man, I pity you. <laughs> yeah, right? That doesn't sound like something you'd want somebody to say to you. But in a way, it's kind of fitting because when, when I mess up, and you're like, well, after all, he's just a sinner saved by grace. You're right. And you'd be having pity on me in recognizing that that's what I am. Be tenderhearted toward each other. Recognize that every one of us is essentially that. And so therefore, when somebody doesn't make that yoke easy for you, be tenderhearted toward them. Cut them some slack. Help them to understand. Don't put them off because that's what they're doing. But rather, be tender-hearted, be compassionate toward them. And then lastly, forgiving one another. And notice the context. Even as God in Christ forgave you. Easy thought doesn't take a lot of expounding. And when we share the gospel, it's why we always talk about what we were first. And for those who are unsaved, what they still are right now. Dead in sin, wicked in heart, selfish, self-centered, uninterested in the things of God, which is to say in an ultimate sense, you are uninterested in the things that are good. There's a lot of problems. And all of them describe and paint a picture of somebody who's hopeless. If we realize that about ourselves and we understand that Christ forgave us, while we're yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, right? If we understand that, then we understand forgiveness. We understand grace. And therefore, we can extend it. Jesus told two similar stories. He spoke of one who owed a great debt, one who owed a small debt, and the master forgave them both. And Jesus said, which one do you suppose loved the master more? And the natural response was, well, the one who was forgiven more. He told another story. He talked about a master who had forgiven a, a servant a, a tremendous debt. That servant then went on and found someone who owed him far less and throttled him. He said, pay me what you owe me. And the story goes on. But the contrast between these two is obvious. One person recognized fully the tremendous debt that had been paid on their behalf, had been forgiven, wiped clean. The other one did not understand just what had been forgiven them. We ought, have, we ought be the former and not the latter on that. We should understand fully. We said before, you don't, you don't drive looking in the rearview mirror the whole way. But every now and again, it's helpful to look back and see where you came from. Because it helps you appreciate all the more where you're headed. We ought to be able to forgive one another when we are wronged. As a matter of fact, we ought to be able to forgive people even when they don't ask for it. You were once a prisoner of those things. You were once trapped under the expectations and the ill treatments of others. But you know something? 
what we owed God was greater than what that person owed us. And if we understand that, and by the way, that's true for everybody. When we understand that, we now have the capacity, I think, to now forgive in a way that is true and genuine. Even if they never ask for it, even if they never appreciate it. This is the heart of a believer. And by the way, these characteristics and traits that begin to now demonstrate the new man that has been put on. And when we express these things around each other, this becomes an evidence for the world to see that we are his, right? How will they know you're my disciples? By your love for one another. Well, when these things find their way out because of the genuine appreciation for and love in response to the change that God has wrought in us, A, that's a beautiful environment to dwell in. But it's also a tremendous testimony. It glorifies the Lord. It's something that's important, and that's why it matters to Him. And so that being said, uh, I'm going to stop there, and um, I'm going to pray. But as I said at the beginning, you know, it's... In some ways, talking about these things and covering them is easier than some of the deeper, headier theological kinds of ideas that we might come across in Scripture. But on a personal note, in a practical way, it can be even harder because this now is something that I'm asking God to change within me. It's not theoretical, something I'm reading and just understanding. It's actually fruit that is produced in a life that is changed. And change, changed implies that something needed to be changed. And that's where the rub comes in. But hopefully we all want that. Hopefully we want people to look at us and say, wow, you remind me of Jesus. You know? Hopefully that's what we want. And we want to ask the Lord to do that. Let's close and ask him to help us in that way. Father, we are grateful that you took some time this morning as we opened your word to tell us the truth. And you did it in love. And we know that you love us because you so love the world you gave your only begotten Son that whoever would believe in him, whosoever would believe in him, would not perish but have everlasting life. We thank you that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. We thank you that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We thank you that even in pointing these areas out to us, these things that we've read about in the last couple of weeks, things that you want to change within us, and even the things that we'll read in the passages going forward, as you instruct us and teach us what redemption looks like lived out in the lives of the redeemed, that you're going to want to work within us as we learn these things. We would ask that you'd not allow us to let these things reside in our minds only, Help us to understand them. Help us to mull them over. Help us to digest them. But help them not to just stop there. But let them, like nourishing food, make us healthy. And to change that which in us that is unhealthy. We want to be this for your glory. We want to be this as a testimony to the world around us. We want to be this for the sake of our brothers and sisters around us. And in some of these areas, no doubt, it'll be a taller order for some of us than others. And in other areas, maybe you might feel like we're moving forward in that way. But in all things, 
work these things out in us and do what you have to to get us there. We're thankful our salvation doesn't ride on this. It's a reflection of it. But we do want to reflect you. So thank you for being so kind to us and so gracious. Thank you for showing us these things. And thank you for the work you're going to do within us to make these things true within us. Father, we love you and praise you. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. While we all stand, let's sing together. Chosen of God is the chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, and humility. With meekness, long suffering, bear with one another and forgive as Christ forgave you. As the chosen
Beautiful. Well, uh, the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you, and be gracious to you, and give you peace forever. And um, for those who'd like to get involved again in our Handyman Helps ministry, why don't you stick around for a little bit here, maybe at about noon, we'll go ahead and talk for just a little bit. If anyone needs prayer, I've uh, got oil, we can anoint you and pray for your healing. If you're going through something, you want some prayer over it, come on up, we'll pray for you as well. But the Lord bless you this week. Have a wonderful week walking in Him, submitting to what the Holy Spirit wants to do. It can be tough, but it's good. It's a good thing. So God bless you all.